make sure I go ahead and do that so I don't forget. <laughs> Um, I'm going to appreciate or uh, thank Josh for reading Ezra chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. That's where we're going to be kind of looking at this morning. That's where the uh, primary focal point of our, uh, my lesson this morning is going to be from. I want to um, briefly give a synopsis of the book of Ezra before we get into that, though. Um, I don't know who all here has studied or at least read through the book of Ezra. But if you're familiar with the setting of Ezra, this is the during captivity and return from captivity. Uh, and at the beginning of Ezra, in chapter 1, Cyrus writes a decree for the people of Israel to go back and build the house of God. So in the beginning of uh, uh, chapter 2 is when Zerubbabel and the first group of captives return <coughs> to Jerusalem uh, to build the house of God. And um, they meet a little bit. In chapter 2, he's kind of giving names of everyone who uh, returns with Zerubbabel. And then in chapter 3, you see the restoration of worship. And you remember the story where they build the temple, they finish it, and they're kind of consecrating the temple. And half the people are rejoicing and half the people are sad because they remember the glory of Solomon's temple. And we're familiar with that story. And then in chapter 4... Uh, is when they start meeting a little bit of resistance from the people surrounding them. And they write, those people write a letter to King Artaxerxes uh, saying this people has a history of rebellion. So you need to stop this. You need to stop this work from being done. So Artaxerxes looks a little bit at that history and then he writes a letter for them to stop working. So they stop working. And at the end of chapter 4 we see the reign of Darius kind of come into the picture. And then in chapter 5 is when we see Zechariah and Haggai come into the picture. And they start prophesying, telling the people to go and build the, the house of God. You remember Haggai saying, how is it that you're building these paneled houses for yourself and my house is left in ruins? So uh, they come into the picture and, and they bring the people back to um, build the, uh, continue working on the temple. And then they write a letter to Darius saying, okay, we had this decree originally from Cyrus that we could do this and, and Darius confirms that in chapter 6 so they complete the temple in chapter 6 rededicate it Passover celebrated and then we see the introduction of Ezra in chapter 7 which is a little odd because Ezra um, isn't really mentioned through the first six chapters until chapter 7 Ezra is introduced and so he comes I think it's around like 50-something years later after all of this has been completed, okay? And I'm not 100% sure on those facts, but um, he comes into the picture in chapter 7, and it says in chapter 7 and verse 10, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this was kind of the purpose of Ezra, was to rededicate the people to the law, okay? They've, they've already rebuilt the temple, so Ezra comes in, with another group of captives to rededicate, re rededicate the people to the law. And he gets, of course, a letter of confirmation from Artaxerxes in chapter 7. And then he has, in chapter 8, it lists some of the heads of the family's houses uh, that return with him. Um, he gives some gifts for the temple in verses 24 through 30. That's uh, like silver and gold to be dedicated for, for uh, worship. And then in... The, at the end of chapter 8 is the return to Jerusalem. 
Okay, so I wanted to go through all that real quickly to kind of catch us up to speed what's going on in the book of Ezra. A lot has happened at this point, right? A lot of good things are happening in the book of Ezra. Returning to Jerusalem, building the temple, Ezra coming in trying to rededicate the people to the law. But when you understand Ezra's purpose, it kind of makes sense when we get into chapter 9 as to his reaction, okay? So what's going on in chapter 9? Look at verses 1 and 2 of Ezra 9. It says, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So again, you remember the purpose of Ezra is to bring this people back to the word. And here some of the priests and Levites are doing the very opposite of what God had commanded in separating themselves from the people of the land. So it makes sense as to why Ezra has the reaction that he has in verses 3 through 4. It says, When I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my uh, hair of my head and beard, and sat down astonished. Ezra's just completely astonished at this thing that's going on in Israel. And it says in verse 4, that everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. All day. Ezra, I just imagine just sitting there like with his mouth open. I can't believe this is happening in Israel. Can you believe this? After everything that we've been through, and here the very leaders of the people in the law of God are disobeying, practicing marriage with pagan women, just completely astonished. And he offers this beautiful prayer in chapter 9 of forgiveness and confession. And that brings us to chapter 10, which Josh read for us this morning. And in verse 1, We see Ezra still praying, still confessing, still weeping and bowing down before the house of God, is what uh, verse 1 says. Again, Ezra's still completely astonished. What's amazing to me, it mentions here in verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. This is one of the heads of the houses that had returned with Ezra back to Jerusalem. This man knew Ezra, or at least on some level, knew Ezra's purpose and knew Ezra, I would say, fairly well, right? And apparently from his confession, it sounds like he was involved in this too. He says in verse 2, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. So it sounds like Shechaniah was just as involved in this as the Levites. Even Joshua, or Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, who had, from the very beginning of Ezra, been deeply and heavily involved in this restoration, his sons were doing this, it says in chapter later in chapter 10. So you can imagine Ezra's discouragement, the source of his discouragement, And then we see that in in verse 1. And to me, it seems like Ezra's discouragement was somewhat paralyzing to him. 
because all day he had sat astonished, right? And he even, even at the beginning of chapter 10, he's still confessing, he's still praying. I just imagine he's so just distraught over what's happened that it's almost like a paralyzing discouragement. And it's really not, it also seems that he doesn't really know what move to make next until the people present that to him, right? He's still doing these things, still astonished over what's happened. And then Shechaniah says, look, we've sinned. And here's what we need to do. We need to make a vow to God that we're going to put away these wives, put away the children that came with them. And we're going to return back to the law of God. But to me, it's like Ezra didn't really know where to go from here. So what is it that brought Ezra back to his feet? That's what I want us to focus on. Perhaps I spent too much time explaining what's leading up to the heart of my lesson, but what brings Ezra back to his feet? I'm sure the confession of Shechaniah has something to do with that, right? And the solution that Shechaniah <coughs> offers of putting away these wives and their children. But consider chapter 10 and verse 4, which is the verse that I want us to focus on for the remainder of the lesson. He had said in chapter 2, or excuse me, uh, verse 2, we've sinned, we need to put these wives away in verse 3, and the children that we have born, uh, who have been born to them. And he says, let it be done according to the law in verse 3, the end of verse 3. Now listen to verse 4. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. What is it that brings Ezra back to his feet? I think the people, I think Shechaniah identifies some important principles here of finding the strength that comes with change that comes with repentance. Because no repentance is going to come about until we have the confidence and the strength that we need to make that change. So that's what I want to focus on from verse 4. What are some of these principles that Shechaniah identifies of having that strength to make a change? Because like I said, it seems like Ezra's paralyzed. He doesn't know what to change at this point, right? Until Shechaniah offers this encouragement. I think these principles are vital to the strength that it takes for us to repent and change things in our lives. So the first one, he says at the beginning of verse 4, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. I'm assuming, were you reading from the New King James? I was. Okay. So, um, New King James, New American Standard, word it this way. Um, other versions read a little differently. ESV says, Arise, for it is your task. Uh, NIV says, Rise up, this matter is in your hands. So words are a little bit different. I, I prefer, and I, I just like the way New King James reads that. Arise for this matter is your responsibility. Again, we read in, in chapter 7 and verse 10 that Ezra had taken it upon himself that he was going to teach the ordinances of the law to Israel, right? So 
to me, this is the way in which it was Ezra's responsibility. Shechaniah knew that this was Ezra's purpose, was to go and teach the people and rededicate them to the law. Well, now they've departed from that. Ezra's astonished by it. And Shechaniah says, look, we want to do this exactly as the law says. He says in verse 3, let it be done according to the law. We need you. This is your responsibility, Ezra. You're the one that knows the law. We need you to lead us in it. I think this first this is kind of the first principle that I want to draw out, but there's a I think let me say this. There's a lot of lessons I think we could take from that. But here's what I want to emphasize. We are just as responsible for our own sins and for our own repentance. Just as Ezra was seen as responsible for the change in the people, we are responsible for our own changes. In Ezekiel chapter 18, we read read Ezekiel chapter 1 this morning. Um, In Ezekiel chapter 18, God... Ezekiel prophesied to the people, we read in chapter 1, by the river Chabar. He was kind of amongst the common people. Daniel was kind of in Babylon, right, where the the central focus. And while all that was going on, Jeremiah was in Israel prophesying. So all these are kind of prophesying at the same time. Um, And Ezekiel is saying to the people, uh, or reminding the common people, right, back in Babylon, we're going to return. There's going to be a return. And in chapter 18, God deals with this proverb that's being spread around the, to the people. It says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So these people are there in captivity and they're like, we're not the ones that, that did this. Some of us are innocent. We're not the ones that committed these sins. And here we are suffering the punishment for what our fathers did. And listen to how God addresses this problem. In verse 20, he says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Later on in verses 30 through 32, he says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. Who is God putting the responsibility on here? Say, it's not, it's not your father's fault. It's your fault. You're the one who sinned. You're not, going to bear the, you're not going to bear the punishment or the iniquity of your fathers. The soul who sins will die. Everyone's righteousness will be upon himself and his wickedness will be upon himself, he said in verse 20. And he says, I will uh, repay everyone according to his ways in verse 30. Get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. It's your responsibility. Just like Ezra, 
God is putting the responsibility here on the people of Israel. And of course this translates to all of us, right? Having a responsibility for my own righteousness, for my own changes, for my own repentance. And he explains that here in chapter 18, that if a, if a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and turns to be wicked, he's going to bear the iniquity, or he's going to bear the guilt of that. And vice versa, if a wicked man turns back and starts to do the right thing, he's going to live. He says that very clearly. We are responsible for our own decisions. We're responsible for our own changes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read some of these verses because I have several verses here. But 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, listen to the responsibility that Paul is putting on you and me, okay, individually. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Yes, we, we have one another, right? And yes, we're a part of a church, a group. We encourage one another. We try to help one another. But just because I'm close to Josh doesn't mean his righteousness is going to rub off on me <laughs> and make me righteous. Now, it might help me. His example might help me be a better person. But I'm not going to be judged by the good things that Josh does. And he's not going to be judged by the bad things that I do. Every one of us is going to have to face God individually. This is an important point, I think, for us to remember. Because I, I think I forget this a lot. That in the day of judgment, it's just going to be me and God. It's not me and Stephen. I don't have any of you to vouch for me. Now, thankfully, we have a good advocate who's much better than any of us could ever be. But the point is, I'm going to have to face God for my own decisions. Romans 14 and verse 12 says, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Can you imagine giving an account of yourself to God right now? I don't know what I would say. I think it's a, the same idea as... Uh, some songs kind of present this idea of I'm with him, with Jesus, right? I'm with him. He's the only reason. He's the only reason that I can stand before you. Each one of us, though, has to give an account. <clears throat> On the day of judgment, here's the thing. Remember this. On the day of judgment, you have to take responsibility for yourself. There's no choice. There's no choice. You can't avoid the responsibility that is, that is inherent upon yourself for the changes of the actions that you did while you were here on this earth. In that moment, you're going to have to face the responsibility. So my encouragement is let's take responsibility for ourselves now. Let's take responsibility for ourselves now and make the changes necessary for repentance. This is important, though. If we're going to change, if we're going to repent, if we're going to make changes like Shek and I wants Ezra to lead them in, we have to take that responsibility. We have to realize that it's on us, right? So let's look at the second part of this verse that I want to 
talk about. He says, Arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. And I emphasize in that first point that yes, it's our own personal <clears throat> responsibility, it's our own personal choices. We're responsible for our changes. But the comfort in this, and the comfort that Shekinah gives to Ezra is, you're not alone. We're going to support you. We'll be right behind you. And that's the thing, when repentance is necessary, and when sin is discouraging, like Ezra was discouraged right here, it's not easy to take responsibility. It's not easy to say, you know what, I'm responsible for the changes that I need to make. I'm going to get up and do this. In that moment, you know what a lot of times we need is encouragement. A lot of times we need support from one another. We need to know that each other is available for help when we're struggling. So my, my, here's my encouragement, first of all. Well, let me make this point too. <laughs> that I think every one of us has experienced a moment in our lives where that wonderful feeling of feeling like you have support. You have people behind you. Stephen, I, I hate to call you out, but I'm sure you probably felt that way when you, with your graduation party, right? You're just like, man, I didn't realize I had all these people that were backing me, that care about me. It's moments like that where you're like, wow, <coughs> I have a lot of support. And every one of us has experienced that in some way or another. Maybe we had a graduation party or something like that. It's a great feeling. So here's my challenge to us. There's a couple challenges in this point. One, are we offering support to the brethren who we know are struggling? Are we offering them support? Do we let them know that we're there? Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we all know this very well. It says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Yeah, there's responsibility on that person to restore himself and change. But here, Paul is putting responsibility on me and you to restore that person, to help that person. In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, listen to this, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. How do you feel about the people at Intel or other Christians that you interact with that seem to be weak? How do you feel about them? Do you find them as a necessary part of the body? Because that's what Paul said. Those who seem to be weaker are necessary. Those members which seem to be weaker. How can we say to those who seem to be weaker in our eyes that we have no need of them in our lives? How can we say, you're not good enough for me? Do we see the value of one another in our lives, even of those who are very clearly struggling? And do we offer our help to these brethren? 
later on there in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Are we suffering with those who are suffering from sin? If you've ever, and I'm sure you all have, dealt with someone, tried to coach someone or encourage someone who's struggling with a particular sin, it's, it's like suffering with them, right? It's exhaust. It can be exhausting because you're constantly having to help them. And you know what? It's easy to say, you know what? It's on them. It's their responsibility. It's not on me. I'm not the one doing this. But what is Paul putting on us here? That if one of our members is suffering, we ought to be willing to suffer with that member to bear their burdens with them, to help them, to support them, the exact point that Shechaniah is making to Ezra. We are behind you. We are with you in this matter. Are we offering that support to help them change and to be willing to suffer with them? 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. That's what we're talking about here, right? Upholding the weak. Supporting the weak is how some translations translate that. Be patient with all. Do we recognize the importance of offering our support? And then here's the other end of that. That if we are struggling, do we recognize the importance of utilizing that support when we know that we need to change? We know we need to repent. We know we need to change. But a lot of times it's hard for us to go to someone who we know would help us, right? Because we're, we're ashamed. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants to keep us away from each other, right? He wants our sins to separate us from one another and then pull us farther and farther away to... we're lost so the idea here is are we willing to confess our trespasses to one another pray for one another that you may be healed as James 5.16 says go to that support confess your sins seek the help humble yourself if we aren't willing to reach out to those who are willing to help us then we're hardly going to find the support that we need that it takes to change, and that it takes to repent. Okay, so let's go to the rest here. Um, just a couple more points. Okay, so I need to hurry. Um, he says there, uh, arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage. I think this is interesting because as I was preparing for this lesson, I don't, I don't think I think about being courageous enough. Do you think about that a lot? Maybe you all think about that more than I do. I, I appreciate Blake leading that song. Um, but here's my question. What allows us to have courage in our spiritual battle for repentance or change? What allows us to have courage? Is it because I'm so strong or I know now, okay, I need to change and I'm, I'm just such a good person that I can just find the courage I need and do it? Over and over again in Scripture, 
It says, I'm just going to read you a few of these. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. That's the temptation, right? Well, why do I need to be strong and of good courage? It says, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1 and verse 9. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 27 and verse 14. God is the one who strengthens us, who allows us to have that courage. It's not because I'm so strong. It's not because I have just the gusto to push through every challenge that I face. It's because I know that God is never going to leave me and he's never going to forsake me. And he's the one that gives me that strength. But it's difficult to be courageous when we're facing change. Because change is hard. Change is hard. Especially the changes that Ezra was about to face. I mean, this is changing hundreds of men's leader of the people's lives. They're getting rid of not only their wives, but their children from these women. No doubt they loved those children. This is a hard change he was about to face. He needed this courage. But it's difficult to have that courage when we're facing change. But all the verses that we read, they identify that source of that courage, which is God. At the core of courage, though, we have to remember what allows us to have that courage. Not only God's ability, but our belief in God's ability, right? It takes faith to be able to have courage. It takes faith in God in order for us to have the courage we need to change. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Maybe that's an odd verse to illustrate this point, but here's what I want to make. Is, am I a coward? Am I a coward? To me, that's the most, I don't know how you would say this, but antonym term that you could use to courage, right? Being a coward. You ever think about that? Being cowardly? Being unbelieving? Do we have the courage that God can help us? And do we have the belief that God can help us? Because those are the very things that will condemn us if we don't. According to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. Will we find ourselves as cowards and unbelieving when it comes to facing challenges and changes that and repentance that need to be made in our lives? Alright, in the last part of this verse here, he says... Arise for this matter is a responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Ultimately, what change requires is action. And we know that, right? Repentance requires action. Acts 26 and verse 20 says, this is Paul's defense before King Agrippa. And he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea. And then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God. Now listen to this. And do works befitting repentance. 
are our works worthy of repentance, right? Some versions read that way. Works worthy of repentance. Uh, oh, actually, uh, Matthew 3 and verse 8 reads that way. It says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance is how uh, Jesus says that to the Pharisees when they're, or excuse me, John the Baptist says that to the Pharisees when they're coming out to him. And he says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And he says, you bear, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So, again, what kind of action are we showing that's befitting repentance? That's exactly what Paul preached. That's what John the Baptist preached. And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul preaches that even further when he says, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner. That you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What was it that, that sorrow in a godly manner produced? What diligence it produced in you? What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication? In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear. Some versions say innocent in this matter. If we simply have sorrow, but no fruit of change, then we're not repenting. We're not repenting. This is a hard point for me to hear when I was preparing for this lesson. It's easy to feel sorry about my sin. It's not easy to change. It's not easy to have the courage I need. It's not easy to take responsibility. It's not easy to seek support when I need it. And it's definitely not easy to take action. Ezra 10 in verse 4 sets out some fundamental principles of the strength that is necessary for change. I guess that was the most... That was kind of the title of my lesson. Had I had a PowerPoint, you probably would have seen that. So I'm kind of glad because I didn't know if that was the best title or not. But the strength that is necessary for change and repentance, we need the strength that it takes to take responsibility for our actions. We need support in our efforts for change. We need courage to believe it is possible with God's help. And we need action in order for change to take place. So... My question this morning is, how about you? How about you? How about your life? Are you taking responsibility for yourself? Do you seek support when you need it? Are you courageous enough to enact change with God's help? And are you ready to take action today? Looking just real quickly what happens, how Ezra responds to this. Verse 5. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to his word. For they swore an oath. So they swore an oath. Ezra was convicted and immediately he gets up and he changes. He starts changing things. 
How about today? Are you going to have that immediate response? That's the question that remains for us. Thank you so much for your good attention. I think Blake is going to lead us in a song of encouragement.